You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello listeners, welcome to the 1856th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 25th of November 2021. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin, the producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Harvey Johnson and Val Fletcher. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any phone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. Our headlines for this week. Suffolk in a strong place to exit special Covid status. NHS staff doing everything they can to clear away time's backlog. Reward of £20,000 offered to help get justice for Simon's family. Homes market faces logjam in Suffolk as demand soars. Public health chiefs in Suffolk hope the county will soon be able to exit the enhanced response area status, which was introduced to help tackle rising Covid cases. Extra government support was drafted in earlier this month as cases rose sharply. But Suffolk's Public Health Director, Stuart Keeble, said yesterday, We believe Suffolk is in a strong position to exit ERA. However, we will be led by the data which is being reviewed. He said, There has been lots of activity in the first three weeks, including county-wide communication and an extensive surge vaccination programme in Ipswich. This activity will continue for the next two weeks. We don't expect to see an impact immediately, but rates continue to drop in Ipswich, where a lot of the focus has been. We have sent out a county-wide advice leaflet and will continue with surge vaccinations in Ipswich for four consecutive weekends. Discussions are taking place about where else surge vaccinations should be offered. There has also been a government advan with Covid safety messages driving around Ipswich, Bury, Lowestoft and Newmarket. Residents are being encouraged to get fully vaccinated, wash hands and wear masks in crowded places. The news comes after it was revealed one million vaccines have now been administered by the Essex Partnership University NHS Foundation Trust at its vaccination centres across Essex and Suffolk. NHS staff are under immense pressure to clear the backlog of patients waiting for treatment in Suffolk as the number continues to rise. Both the West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust and the East Suffolk and North Essex NHS Foundation Trust have seen significant increases to the number of people and the length of time people are waiting for treatment since last year. 
In September this year, there were 24,086 patients waiting to start treatment at West Suffolk Hospital, up more than 20% compared to the previous September. There were 62,903 people on the waiting list at Colchester and Ipswich hospitals, up 11.4%, and 1,534 people have been waiting for more than a year for an appointment there. While more than 1,900 people had to wait longer than 56 weeks at West Suffolk hospitals for treatment, nationally, the standard of 92% of people seen within 18 weeks of a referral has not been met since 2016. Neil Maloney, acting chief executive of ESNEFT, said, We are doing everything we can to treat patients as quickly and as safely as we can. However, we must be realistic and accept that we still have a waiting list to work through due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and some people will, unfortunately, be waiting longer than we'd want them to be. Our dedicated teams are working incredibly hard to tackle the backlog and to reduce the number of patients waiting for treatment in our communities. A WSFT spokesman said, Our staff have worked tirelessly to treat both COVID and non-COVID patients throughout the pandemic. Urgent and emergency procedures, including cancer care, have continued and we are doing everything we can to treat patients as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, during the pandemic, waiting lists have increased, and we appreciate the impact this has on patients who are waiting for an appointment or treatment. We are prioritising patients based on clinical need, in line with national guidelines. We are also working with our NHS healthcare partners and the independent sector to increase capacity where possible, using the additional funding awarded across Suffolk and North East Essex to tackle waiting lists. Police investigating the killing of football fan Simon Dobbin are offering a £20,000 reward for information leading to a conviction. Essex Police have joined forces with Charity Crime Stoppers to help find those responsible for the attack on the Cambridge United supporter in Southend on March the 21st, 2015, which left him with permanent brain damage. Simon of Mildenhall died in his sleep in October last year, aged 48, with a forensic post-mortem identifying that there was a direct link between the assault and his death. At a press conference announcing the latest move, Simon's widow Nicole, sitting alongside the couple's daughter Emily, said, We have had over five of the most horrendous years and we will now have to grieve all over again whilst the individuals who planned and carried out this attack walk free, left to live their lives however they wish. If anyone has any information relating to the attack on Simon, we ask for you to come forward. Mr Dobbin was unable to walk or talk after the attack, which followed a game between Southend United and Cambridge United. Twelve men were jailed for violent disorder offences, with sentences ranging from 16 months to five years, and another man received a suspended sentence. Detective Superintendent Stephen Jennings, Senior Investigating Officer, said... We are treating Simon's death as homicide 
and are now working to identify those directly responsible. Simon was a completely innocent party in the disorder that took place that day, and his family have been through an unimaginable time in the last six years. We are committed to doing everything we can to get justice for them. Imagine if this was your loved one. You would want justice. Help us get justice for Simon's family. Suffolk is currently seeing an unprecedented shortage of homes for sale, according to a leading estate agent. Jonathan Penn of Jackson Stops and Staff, which has branches in Ipswich, Bury St Edmunds and Newmarket, said potential sellers are reluctant to put their house on the market because they do not have any confidence they will be able to find a home to buy. In September, figures from property website Right Move revealed Newmarket as the town with the biggest property supply shortage in the country over the past year. The statistics showed that house sales in the horse racing town had increased by 79% compared with July 2020, with a drop of 49% in new sellers putting homes onto the market. All of the top 10 supply shortage hotspots were in the south-east and east of England and likely reflected a fresh desire for people to escape London for areas still commutable to the capital, according to Rightmove. Mr Penn said, The demand is unsatisfied. There are a lot of very motivated, focused buyers who are still looking. A lot of them have missed out on properties that they've liked and they've made offers on. Those who want to sell are reluctant because their perception is that you can't find or won't be able to find a house to buy. And if they do, they'll get pipped at the post by a more procedable buyer. The market is no longer balanced. There's more buyers than properties for sale, which is making it a seller's market. And it's been like that for the past two years. It's unprecedented. I've been doing it for 35 years and I've never known the supply to be so tight. We're moving now from the headlines to the general news. Green Party co-leader Adrian Ramsey looks set to stand for a Suffolk seat in the next general election in an attempt to win a place in the House of Commons. Mr Ramsey, a former Norwich City Councillor, aims to stand for the Bury St Edmunds seat if the election is fought on the current boundaries or for the new North Suffolk seat if the changes proposed during the summer are implemented in time. He's hoping to build on his party's success in parts of Mid-Suffolk, East Suffolk and West Suffolk elections in his Westminster bid. Green Party co-leader Adrian Ramsey has been selected to be the party's parliamentary candidate in North Suffolk. He was elected to the leadership earlier this year alongside Carla Denyer. Mr Ramsey said, The blue wall of Conservative power in the countryside is not as strong as Conservative politicians would have us believe. He said the Greens were already the main opposition on Suffolk County Council and Mid-Suffolk. Now we aim to replace the blue wall with something much more effective, like a green hedge. Mr Ramsay is visiting Cotton near Stowe Market today to help local members and villagers plant a hedge at the village hall. He said, This government has taken people in the countryside for granted. 
As a result of this, the blue wall is crumbling, as we've seen from recent by-election wins by the Greens, including one at Alborough and Leyston. Green Suffolk County Councillor for the area, Andrew Stringer, said, There is a growing feeling that local people are not being listened to and the needs of local village and town economies not met. In 2019, the Green Party came third in Bury St Edmunds with nearly 16% of the vote, finishing behind Conservative Joe Churchill and Labour. The Liberal Democrats stood aside in favour of the Greens. The Boundary Commission for England has proposed a shake-up of seats in the county that would lead to the creation of geographically huge constituency, North Suffolk, stretching from Bungie in the east to Pakenham and Troston in the west. But even if it is approved, it will not come into effect until summer 2023 at the earliest, and there could be changes before then. A Suffolk Health Chief has said he is ashamed of current NHS dental provision in the county and vowed to do everything possible to improve the situation when commissioning powers change. Plans have been announced for the commissioning of dental services to move from NHS England to the local integrated care system, that's ICS, local partnerships of health commissioners and providers. Dr Ed Garrett, executive lead for the Suffolk and North East Essex ICS, spoke at last week's Health and Wellbeing Board. He said, The responsibility for commissioning dentistry is going to move from NHS England to the Integrated Care Board within the next year or 18 months, so we will have a lot more local control. But I think it has become the biggest issue for our communities, so we are absolutely going to do everything we can to improve the situation. I'm pretty ashamed of it at the moment. It needs to improve. A spokesman from the ICS added, We are currently in early discussions with NHS England about the local transfer of commissioning responsibilities for NHS dental services, which is anticipated to happen in 2023. Availability of NHS dentists has become a key problem in the county, with some towns such as Leyston losing entire surgeries. A meeting of East Suffolk Council's scrutiny com committee last month found that dentist posts were routinely taking two or more years to fill in Suffolk, while the setup of the NHS contracts meant they were not attractive for surgeries to offer. Other problems highlighted included the lack of a dental school in the region and the complicated red tape for fully qualified dentists from other countries to join the NHS Dental Performers List. The Toothless in Suffolk campaign group, formed during the COVID-19 pandemic, has campaigned for changes, while Charity Dentaid's recent two days in Bury St Edmunds with its bus clinic were packed out. Changes to NHS contracts have been proposed for next year, which will include seven days a week provision, with more flexibility, although full details are yet to be published. The Department for Health and Social Care has said that the full range of dental services have been available since June 2020, with work continuing with the NHS to improve access to services.
Plans for a new hospital in Bury St Edmunds have been branded short-sighted during a consultation with members of the public. West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust is currently going through a second phase of public engagement to support an outline planning application to build on the 70-acre site of Hardwick Manor, where the current hospital is based. But one resident, Catherine Hempel, whose father, Robert Miller, lives in nearby Hardwick Lane, said she shared concerns over traffic build-ups in the area when the building was being constructed and whether an alternative site would have been more suitable in the long term. For the residents of Hardwick Lane, there is going to be considerable impact and there's no way out of it, she said. If you're talking about a site that's going to be there for 30 to 40 years, it's short-sighted, she added. Her comments came as Susan and Robert Sanderson of Home Farm Lane, near to the hospital site, also shared concerns about whether the traffic infrastructure would be good enough to cope with ambulances and other vehicles entering and leaving the new hospital. They did consider the site to be the right choice, though. One resident, who wished to remain anonymous, believed the site was the right choice as well, but said timing was of the essence, with the current building needing remedial works done on it. Belinda Powell of Horsecroft Lane shared noise concerns about the building works, but did acknowledge the Trust's decision to mitigate the new site's impact on the surrounding environment. The West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust was approached for a comment. A schoolboy has pleaded for a bridge to be built over a busy stretch of road so he and others can cross it safely. In a letter to the parish council, Jacob Black, aged eight, who regularly crosses the A143 in Ixworth with his mum Claire, says he is often left feeling scared due to how fast cars travel along the road. The 60-mile-an-hour stretch is frequented by thousands of drivers on a daily basis, and with a new housing development planned for the village, the volume of traffic is likely to increase. Clare, who is a member of Ixworth Parish Council, said, It came up because we've got a dog, and we've been going over the bypass for walks. Once you get over the road, it is gorgeous, but it is just that bypass that you have to cross. It's a horrible road and I'm on my own with the dog and my two boys, and we have to stand on this road ready to cross. We were doing it every day, and Jacob said, This is crazy. They hate it. They hate crossing it. Parish councillors have been campaigning for a safer crossing since the bypass was built in 1986. Parish councillor Ben Lord said he had been asking for a bridge to give better access to those using the footpath since he first joined the council ten years ago. When I became a parish councillor in 2011, it was one of my first priorities to get a bridge over this road, he said. All we are doing is handing down the problem to future generations. Spurred on by his fears, Jacob wrote his letter to Ixworth Parish Council asking for a safer crossing to be put in place. His letter said, I walk across the bypass every day with my little brother and my mum. A spokesperson for Suffolk Highways said, We would like to thank Jacob for bringing his concerns to our attention. 
we are aware of a proposal for a pedestrian bridge to be constructed over the A143 in the area around Crown Lane. However, we are unable to provide any timescales at this stage as the delivery of the bridge will be funded by contributions from a number of developments in the area. Barry St Edmunds-based drummer Africa Green, who has worked with the likes of the Pet Shop Boys and Becky Hill, has become a lay canon. The ceremony at St Edmundsbury Cathedral on Sunday, November the 21st, saw six senior clergy and eight people in the community become lay, honorary and ecumenical land canons. Africa, 31, was installed as a lay canon into the stall of writers. Lay canons are members of the community who are not ordained clergymen or women, but who are hoped to be something of a think tank for the cathedral, as they live and work in the community which is exactly what Africa has been doing. For the last year and a half, Africa has been a trustee and active member of Bury St Edmunds for Black Lives since its inception, and she hopes she will continue to make a difference within the cathedral. She said, For me, it's about representing diversity. I'm black, I'm young. Perhaps that is different to the majority of people in the church. I want to be able to challenge them at times if I feel that's necessary. Within schools like King Edward's and Thurston, I can look at the curriculum and make some suggestions. Black History is taught during Black History Month, but perhaps there's a way of incorporating that throughout the year. I could also write for the Cathedral Newsletter, which might be a way of making some suggestions and get people thinking, she added. Africa said she felt nervous about her new role to begin with, but was pleasantly surprised to see how diverse the church is. I was a bit nervous because I didn't know what the community was like there, and I was worried that I wouldn't fit in. I'm from a council estate, and you look at the cathedral, and it's very lavish, and has a solid community, but I was accepted. The procession was predominantly led by women, which I thought was really unique. If you've got the gender balance, let's see if we can make it balanced in other ways, ages, race and other orientations. If the church reflects the community, more people will come. And there's a little note at the bottom of this uh, news from Sheila, our editor. She says... It's always lovely to hear how ex-pupils are doing now. I taught Africa a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's rather nice, isn't that? It Pers is. Personal connection. OK, next, uh, next piece of news. Is budget supermarket giant Lidl planning a raft of new stores across Suffolk after announcing plans for a big expansion over the next four years? The German-owned company already has 860 stores across the UK and announced it plans to take this number up to 1,100 by the end of 2025 when it announced its annual results yesterday. That will create 4,000 new jobs. At present it has seven stores in Suffolk but this number is expected to increase with the opening of two new sites in Ipswich over the next two years. There are two stalls in Felixstowe, two in Ipswich 
and one each in Lowestoft, Stowmarket and Haverhill. There are also Lidl stores in Thetford, Harwich and Colchester. There is already planning permission for a new large Lidl store to be built at the Nacton Road entrance to Futura Park. Planning permission was confirmed for this store by Ipswich Council in August. The company has not confirmed when work will start, but it is understood bulldozers will be on the site in early 2022 and it is expected to be open by Christmas next year. After the national announcement was made on Wednesday, there was no one available from the company to comment on particular locations, but it is understood to be interested in sites in Bury St Edmunds, Sudbury and Newmarket. Lidl is often seen as a direct rival to Aldi, which is also a German-owned company. And both discount supermarket groups have been expanding in recent years. Three people who were arrested in connection with an attack in Newmarket Town Centre at the weekend have been released on bail. Police were called at 11.30pm on Saturday by the ambulance service to Newcut following report two men had suffered injuries in an assault. A police cordon was put in place following the incident. The two men's injuries are not believed to be serious. An 18-year-old man, a 62-year-old man and a 42-year-old woman were arrested in the early hours of Sunday on suspicion of assault causing grievous bodily harm. After being questioned, they were released on bail, Suffolk Police confirmed. Police have reassured the public the incident was isolated and there is no wider threat to the community. Anyone with information related to the incident is urged to contact West CID at Bury St Edmunds Police Station, quoting crime reference number 65786 21. A biochemist is celebrating after the inclusion of his range of beer in a National Good Beer Guide. Luke Browning only started his nanobrewery, Biochemist Brewery, last year as a project during lockdown. Out of work at the time, he cleared out junk from his garage at his home and set about converting it into his workspace. The 32-year-old has a BSc degree in biochemistry, a master's degree in biotechnology and a PhD in plant biochemistry, all of which have come in handy with both the brewing process and the beer's marketing. And his beer has now been listed in the camera Good Beer Guide for 2022. It's great to be recognised in the Good Beer Guide, which has documented the UK's unique and rich history of brewing for five decades, said Luke, who lives in Red Lodge. I've been fascinated by the fermentation process since I studied it at university. I even started my own beer then. It was always a dream to start my own brewery, and during lockdown I thought it was now or never, as a contract I'd been working on had already ended, and finding new work because of the lockdown was difficult. Luke is now working full-time again as a biochemist, but any of his spare time is spent brewing. He produces a range of five core beers and seasonal ciders and is a regular on markets including Islam, Newmarket, Chippenham and Bury St Edmunds. He plans to start an online shop next year. 
On the label of each of the beers is a diagram of the chemical structure of a molecule of an ingredient that goes to make up a particular beer, be it the aroma or flavour. Beers include brown ale, classic English, rich and malty, wit beer, a Belgian white wheat beer infused with citrus peel, coriander and chamomile, and Hefelweizen, a German classic, with notes of banana and clove. Ciders include single orbit, apple cider, fermented with Belgian Abbey Bee yeast, and a classic apple cider yeast, and peach and chamomile, with a strong peach on the nose and finish with f- faint floral notes from chamomile. Biochemist Brewery also releases experimental series of beer and also delivers on orders over £20 in a 15-mile radius. <laughs> and he does all that with a 24-hour day. Yeah, and he's got a full-time job. <laughs> and a full-time job. <laughs> <laughs> right. Three-quarters of all fly tipping in West Suffolk in recent months happened in just seven areas, according to latest figures. Data published by West Suffolk Council recorded 133 fly-tipping incidents between July the 1st and September the 31st, down on the 208 reported during the same period last year. The numbers only pertain to instances reported by the public or staff to the Council and does not include those which were not reported to the authority. But the Council has said 75% of incidents were located within a small number of housing estates across the district. Mildenhall, Noton, Clements, Chalkston, Chilmswell, Brickfield and All Saints. A spokesman from the authority said they welcomed the news their work was reducing reports of fly-tipping, but that, despite this, people still fly-tipped. They reminded people of the severe penalties for dumping rubbish. A railway bridge in Thetford is one of the most bashed in Britain, according to Network Rail. The Station Lane Bridge in the Abbey Farm Estate is among the 20 most hit railway bridges in the UK, with six strikes reported in the last year. It came 20th in a list topped by the Cottenham Road Railway Bridge near Needham Market in Suffolk, which was struck 19 times in the same period. The data compiled by Network Rail revealed bridge strikes cost the organisation more than £5.5 million in delay and cancellation fees in 2020-2021. Network Rail is urging Mortis to wise up, size up, as part of a new campaign to remind lorry drivers to take extra care knowing the height of their vehicles and choosing sensible routes to avoid low bridges. Other bridges in the region which were highlighted by Network Rail included Stuntney Road in Ely and Ipswich Road in Manningtree. In Manning we are now turning to our letters section. And the first letter is from Philip Hodson of Newmarket and it's headed Danger of Smart Motorways. Sir, the Transport Secretary has announced that refuge laybys are to be placed a mile apart instead of 1.5 miles on new smart motorways. This bureaucrat's compromise addresses not at all road conditions in the event of vehicle breakdowns. 
Vehicles with engines which stop, stop need to get immediately off the highway. They have no capacity to coast a mile to the next refuge. Secondly, smart motorways are built to ensure that stopped engine vehicles have nowhere to go, the verge being denied by metal barriers put right up alongside the live lanes. This ensures a killer situation occurring when a live lane is blocked. The third major bureaucratic error is the current provision of refuges which are too short for a lorry or car trailing a caravan or a boat to stop in from a speed of 60 miles per hour in the live lane. For these laden vehicles, a speed of just some 20 miles per hour is needed to enter a refuge, which again generates the killer situation in the live lane. That lorries are engaging in extreme braking to get into a lay-by is evidenced by the caked tyre rubber tracks evident in some lay-bys. And if a lay-by is already occupied by a small car, the likelihood of a desperate lorry entering a lay-by at 60 miles per hour, which cannot stop in the distance, and running over the car becomes very high. Smart motorways are entrapments to kill. Here's a short letter from John Bailey of Stanton under the heading Shortages and Vacancies. Sir, in reply to R.G. Crow, East Anglian Daily Times letters of November the 10th, I would like to reiterate that fiction is that there are shortages in EU countries. Fact is that there are vacancies. Fact is also that there is a difference between the two. For your information, Mr Crow, the shortages are here on your doorstep in the UK. It is also obvious why this is, and everyone either is already or will progressively be affected. The evidence is all around us. I rest my case. And there is an editor's note to that letter saying, letters in this specific chain are now closed. Ah. I've got a very short letter here from E. Martin of Ipswich. We now have proof that corruption and sleaze are alive and well in central government. Reassurance that local government isn't similarly mired, I'm sure, would be most welcome. Oh, it caught me by surprise. It was so short. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that, Val. The next letter from Bob Edwards. Now, he's chairman of Rail Haverhill. He says... Haverhill is one of the largest towns in the UK without a rail connection. With a massive increase in housing provision pushing 40,000 homes or more, it will become the largest town without a rail link. The line was removed in 1966 with the advent of the beaching cuts. At a time of global warming, warming linked to heavy pollution, especially by road vehicles, it is madness to continually look at road-based transport solutions that have not worked. Railways are the most environmentally efficient way to travel. Why is that, for starters? Steel wheel on steel rail has one-sixth of the friction of rubber tyres on roads. Consequently, more payload on distance for every kilowatt of power expended. The vehicles have an extremely long life because of their construction. In 2019... 1,752 people died on the roads. It took COVID with reduced journeys to reduce it to 1,472 fatalities. 
Passenger fatalities on the railways can be counted on the fingers of one hand. Most people die on the railways by suicide. Electric, battery or hydrogen trains can be powered by any non-fossil fuel generation. It is important that Haverhill is reconnected to the national network. This will give choice to those without cars, especially the young, and will aid the regeneration of the town. Name an address supplied with a heading, <coughs> New Businesses Deserve Support. During the current uncertain economic climate, it must take a very special entrepreneurial type of person who has the confidence and drive to open a new enterprise, even in the normally busy town of Bury St Edmunds. And for those who have taken this step, I would like to offer my heartiest and sincere wishes for their success. With Christmas and a new year on the rapidly shortening horizon, these new businesses might get the kickstart that will begin to establish them into being part of the magic that is Bury St Edmunds. Support our high street and its newbies before it's too late. And my letter is from Graham Day of Stowmarket. He says, I read with interest Rosemary Edwards' letter in the Berry Free Press of November the 12th regarding the structure of local government. From late Victorian times until 1974, the structure of local government did not change. When reorganisation was on the horizon, the former Hartsmere Rural District Council, based at I, ran a campaign, the logo of which was a man in a pinstripe suit and bowler hat, the accompanying slogan being, Don't vote for R.E. Mote, remote. After initially going down the route of countrywide unitary authorities running all services, eventually a two-tier system was adopted across the UK with county and district councils. Over the years, successive governments have tinkered with the system and some authorities, such as Baber and Mid-Suffolk, share staffing. On the face of it, sensible, but it is a merger in all but name. Councils are creatures of statute, and have to do what is required of them by law. A single authority may not make things easier, as all the same functions will need to be carried out. However, it is often the perception that it will be better. The council is often used as a generic term covering any local government body. When, interviewed, when interviewing on a survey in Stevenage some years ago, I asked a young mother set questions as to her views on the county district and parish councils. She replied immediately, it is the mm -mm council I pay my mm -mm rent to. Difficulties at the moment always arise with finding out who is responsible. A friend was helping some elderly neighbours during the pandemic who had serious problems with their care packages. It was impossible to get any response from social services despite letters, emails and telephone calls. It was also impossible to contact the county council member with responsibility for social care as the emails were not answered. There was only an improvement in the situation when the MP for Ipswich, Tom Hunt, was involved out of sheer exasperation and frustration. Larger is not necessarily better. It may on the face of it be more appealing and satisfy the illusion that it will cost less in council tax but given the current county council's track record, politically on many issues, I would not trust them to run a New Year's celebration in a local hostelry. 
In Suffolk at the moment, there are East and West Suffolk Councils, and effectively a Mid-South Suffolk Council, with the overarching County Council performing a more strategic role. Matters are best left alone to see how the new councils fare. Be careful indeed what you wish for. It could be much worse. (laughs) Uh, Clifford Davy of Stowmarket has something to say about the vaccinations. Text, phone call, appointment booked. Simple. That's been my experience of getting vaccination injections sorted. But unfortunately, many people have had great difficulties, including one of my sons. Online, phone calls, time and again, all causing causing annoying problems for him to get booked for himself and his wife. One woman who answered the phone insisted he could have an appointment at Suffolk and didn't realise it wasn't a place as such. (laughs) Eventually, he got the venue and time finalised although Carrier Pigeon was looking like the last resort. (laughs) (coughs) Christine Perry, via email, writes about car parking. It's a nightmare trying to understand the new parking metres in Bury St Edmunds. I tried to get a disabled ticket for five hours, but couldn't understand what to do. I then paid by phone, but got home to find I had been charged another £9 as they said I hadn't signed out. If you're dyslexic, can't read or understand the instructions for any reason, it's totally off-putting. There's no cash option either. I've shopped in Bury for years, but will not be able to now. I'll now go to Thetford, where it's free. Ah, now Barry Peters, the editor of the Berry Free Press, he has something to say about the dentist situation, which was um, mentioned in one of our headlines. Barry Peters says, I visited the dentist last week. Clean, efficient, couldn't be faulted. Dentist was lovely, hygienist too. For the first time, though, I had gone private. Mm -hmm. Not through choice, but necessity. I, like score of others, have found it hard to locate an NHS dentist. I'd been with the same dental practice since I was a young boy, and that was turning private too. So I moved to my current Berry dentist as an NHS patient. I was delighted as I saved myself a two-hour round trip. Fast forward some months and my NHS dentist announced, like many others, it was stopping NHS work. So this week's news that Health Chief Ed Garrett is ashamed of dental provision in Suffolk is timely indeed, and it doesn't surprise me one iota. 18 months will see dental provision move from the NHS to the Integrated Care Board, of which Dr Garrett is a leading light. I hope the good doctor can apply some pressure here. No one likes going to the dentist, but it's a fact of life and it must be easily accessible to all, regardless of salary. Peter Critchley of Pakenham uh, writes under the heading, No surprise that NHS is struggling. I'm very surprised that any member of the public is surprised by the depressing news in the past week about the terrible state the NHS care homes and hospitals are in. Ambulance waiting times at a record high. 
backlog of people waiting for treatment getting longer and longer, care homes refusing patients because of staff shortages, hospital appointments, cancellations at the highest ever, etc., etc. The list goes on and on. But it was all predictable. The public have to recognise that this is what you get if you vote Conservative. In doing so, you vote for lower taxes, which means less money for public services. You also vote for pay freezes or pay increases less than inflation, so you cannot be angry that the country finds itself in such a mess. I feel sorry for those who didn't vote Conservative, as these people are the ones suffering as a direct result of the foolishness of others. Make no mistake, the government has a hidden agenda which is to force people into private care. Ministers and their friends can afford to take up this alternative because of all the obscenely paid extra jobs they take on as MPs. The idea that these same MPs will put ordinary people first is, I'm afraid, naive, to say the least. And furthermore, if people are silly enough to elect a known buffoon as leader, then they shouldn't be surprised when he acts like one. The wealthy right-wing elite, of which the Prime Minister is one, believe they have a divine right to rule, but all the evidence suggests they haven't got a clue how to do so. David Trinchero <coughs> from Wickham Skeath writes about the government. Um, Sir, in his letter of the East Anglian Daily Times of November the 9th, Arthur Stansfield says, This government is determined to create a situation where it cannot be held to account. I entirely agree. In addition to the two examples he gives, they were planning to undermine Parliament's anti-corruption standards and giving contracts to cronies for supplying Covid-related medical equipment, I would add... Proposals to reduce the power of the courts to overturn government decisions which are wrong in law. Continued attempts to have Paul Dacre chosen as the head of Ofcom, the media regulator, which would put him in a supervisory position over the BBC and other media outlets. Paul Dacre is a former editor of the Daily Mail and a well-known supporter of Conservative governments. There are many other examples of this government's push to appoint its supporters to currently independent public bodies. Yes, the Conservative Party certainly could engineer Boris Johnson's removal, but will it, but will it so long as it is comfortably ahead in the opinion polls? May I suggest that those who care about our democracy complain to their MP about the direction our government is taking? And we end our letters section with two short letters of thanks. A name and address was supplied for this following letter, headed, Thanks for handing in my lost bag. I would like to give my sincere thanks to the kind lady who found my bag, which I'd left on the shopping trolley I'd used in Sainsbury's in Bury St Edmunds on Wednesday morning. She'd taken it to the customer services desk, where I was very relieved to find it waiting for me. Thank you again. The other letter is from Gordon Halewood. Now he's Vice-Chairman of Trustees for the charity Bridge for Heroes. The Bridge for Heroes would like to thank everyone who donated to the charity on November the 3rd in Bury St Edmunds. 
the total raise was a wonderful £591.10. There were no expenses for the day. This money will go towards the provision of holistic support to serving members and veterans of all our armed forces and their families delivered by the Bridge for Heroes from our centre in Kings Lynn. My first feature is Steve Jupp, who's Chief Constable of Suffolk Constabulary, and he writes that arrests make streets safer. The West Suffolk policing teams have had a busy few weeks ensuring people had fun but stayed safe during Halloween and bonfire night. But this has not stopped them being proactive and tackling crime in their areas. In Newmarket, officers proactively tackled drugs that were coming into our community via the Cambridgeshire border. Their tenacity led to the arrest of two known drug dealers, taking them and a quantity of drugs off our streets. While in Sudbury, local officers PC Walsh and PC Williams carried out proactive patrols which led to the arrest of three men for drug offences, one of whom it later transpired was linked to a county line. These arrests had a significant impact on that particular drugs line and inquiries continue with the METS Op Oroki, the long-term county lines operation, to take out this line permanently. The West Policing Team has also continued our focus on stamping out antisocial behaviour in acknowledgement of the negative impact this can have on so many people's lives. Haverhill's Safer Neighbourhood Team over the last year has undertaken a lot of work assisting local residents on the Boyton Place estate, dealing with antisocial behaviour associated to a small number of residents. Linking in with a housing provider, they have arranged joint partnership meetings, joint visits to the area to speak to residents face-to-face and set up WhatsApp groups to facilitate communications. This has resulted in a massive reduction in crime and incident reporting and proved a positive step in making the area more cohesive for the majority. Following concerns from some of our community in Needham Market, the Stowmarket team has made ASB in the area one of its highest priorities, that's antisocial behaviour. A group of individuals has become a focus for policing activity and consideration of ASB tools is being given to address their behaviour. <clears throat> Meanwhile, in Bury St Edmunds, the team has been focusing on combating street drinking after an increase in complaints in relation to this, and it will be providing a visible presence in the town centre, especially on market days in the lead-up to Christmas. A nighttime economy patrol plan has also been developed for all areas in the West, which helps officers target the locations where individuals might feel unsafe or more, most vulnerable. The public can contribute by reporting where they feel most vulnerable or unsafe at www.police.uk forward slash street safe. Finally, another proud moment recently was when one of my officers attended an emergency call from a family in Long Melford 
where a baby was reported to not be breathing. PC Billy Turner administered first aid, performing CPR for over five minutes, successfully regaining a pulse and saving the baby's life. This is absolutely fantastic news and brilliant work. You may have already read this story in the media, but I wanted to pass on my personal thanks to Billy and best wishes to the family concerned. The face-to-face -face engagement with our communities goes from strength to strength and we hope this continues, especially on the run-up to the festive period and beyond. Our next feature article remembers the life of Bernie Howe, one of the last D-Day veterans. One of the last D-Day veterans who was part of the mission that played a vital role in bringing an end to the Second World War has died at the age of 97. Bernard Bernie Howe hit the headlines earlier this year after he was asked to unveil a special memorial to commemorate 73 of his comrades that never came home. Made up of a sculpture and a roll of honour, the installation depicts a home-safe steel Stirling bomber, one of 16 planes that left the former airfield at North Creek near Fakenham at 9.38pm on June the 5th in preparation for D-Day the next day in 1944. On the 77th anniversary of that mission, Mr Howe, affectionately nicknamed Bun, was invited back to North Creek to unveil the memorial to those who served at the base. Aged 96 at the time, he described it as an honour. Mr Howe was born in the Golden Boar Inn Public House in Freckenham near Newmarket, Suffolk, on October the 28th, 1924. He was the second born of four brothers. Growing up in a pub, he was used to meeting lots of people. His early memories included sledging down a nearby hill. He attended the local school until the age of 14, at which time his father sent him out to work. Mr Howe worked as a carpenter before joining the Royal Air Force during the Second World War. In 1944 he went on to serve as a flight engineer on Stirling and Halifax bombers at RAF North Creek with 199 Squadron. Aged 20, Mr Howe became part of a mission the year he joined on June the 5th. Along with the rest of his crew, he flew over to France ahead of D-Day and dropped the strips which tricked the enemy into believing the invasion was heading for Calais. From North Creek, number 199 and number 171 squadrons of number 100 group of RAF Bomber Command flew Stirling 3s and Halifax 3s on radio countermeasures intended to conceal the true position of the main Allied bomber thrust. They used airborne radio transmis transmitters called Mandrel to jam German early warning radar and dropped aluminium strips, known as window, to give false radar readings. The mission took around six hours and offered a vital window of opportunity to the Allied invasion, the largest amphibious assault ever launched, involving a force of more than 156,000 soldiers, 8,000 ships and 13,000 aircraft. Mr Howe was the last surviving member of his crew of seven. During his time at North Creek he was involved in 35 operations and served four years at there and later RAF Lakenheath. 
Following his military career, he continued working in his trade as a carpenter. Nigel Mortar and Claire Nugent, who owned the nearby controlled tower bed and breakfast in Egmere, had fundraised since 2017 to build a memorial for those who served at the airfield their business is based at. After buying the airfield's former control tower in 2011, the couple set out to learn as much as possible about the history of the base's 11-month operational life. The memorial is a poignant reminder of their efforts. In a post shared with the control tower's followers on Facebook, it read, We first met Bernie back in 2013. We were overjoyed to meet someone who was stationed here, and we had so many questions. He was very generous with his time, and we got to know him and some of his family over the next eight years. Bernie was a new crew member when RAF North Creek was becoming operational, and his first mission was also the first for this station, D-Day. He went on to do 40 sorties, 187 hours and 40 minutes operational flying, all at North Creek. He had a very lucky escape in September 1944 when his Sterling crashed on takeoff, ripping off one wing and mercifully didn't catch a light when it was full of fuel. We shall cherish his flight engineer's badge, which he gave us on a trip to see him at his house a few years back. A wonderful, quiet man. He will be greatly missed by many. Lovely story. Very nice. Our final feature is written by BBC Radio Suffolk's Breakfast Time host, Mark Murphy, who believes that it's time to get together and look out for each other as cold weather moves in. It's been such a mild autumn so far, but that looks like it's going to change in the coming days as the mercury starts to fall. Some are suggesting we could even see some of the white stuff coming our way but I'll wait and see before I get too excited. <laughs> the year is certainly drawing to a close with the cold weather and gloomy days ahead. It can feel a pretty depressing and lonely time for many. I was talking to someone who was recently widowed, and she told me how tough it can be. As people hunker down indoors, she felt very isolated and lonely. It got me thinking this week how lovely it was when we went into lockdown that we all seemed to be looking out for each other, checking on neighbours, ringing up friends and family for a chat or just passing the time of day with someone as we went for a walk. We became a much kinder society but as we've gone back to relative normality we seem to have lost some of that community spirit. At BBC Radio Suffolk we want to do something to help with that. And so we've teamed with Doorstep Carols, a group bringing together musicians, community groups and those people who just want to enjoy singing together. The idea is that on Wednesday, December the 15th at 6pm, you tune in to BBC Radio Suffolk and we all sing carols together for an hour. I'm going to say that day again. Wednesday, December the 15th at 6pm. You tune in to BBC Radio Suffolk and we all sing carols together for an hour. You can meet on your doorstep, in the street or get together at a local community centre and sing your heart out to some traditional carols. 
It could even work in care homes. All you have to do is tune in to us and off you go. The event grew out of lockdown at Christmas 2020 when people joined their neighbours for a socially distant celebration in their streets. It was so successful we're doing it again and with fewer restrictions the options for joining in have grown. We did it last year in our road and we're planning on doing it again this year armed with some mulled wine to keep out the chill. It was great fun belting out while shepherds watched and away in a manger. <clears throat> Mind you, we did get the occasional odd look from drivers who clearly weren't tuned in. It was such a laugh, and to hear all the communities phoning and texting into BBC Radio Suffolk was lovely. It felt like the whole county was coming together as one. I spoke with someone who took part on their own at home, but it made them feel as if they were part of something big, and of course they were. To find out more, go to bbc.co.uk forward slash make a difference, where you download your carol sheets. In the meantime, as the temperature falls, just see if you can find the time to look out for neighbours, elderly relatives, etc., and put a smile on their faces by reaching out to them. A simple knock on a neighbour's door or a phone call to someone you haven't spoken to goes a long way. We're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any, have, oh dear, my teeth are trying to fall out. <laughs> if you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use, oh no, please use the phone numbers on the pink sheet, yes, which you have been given, or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Sheila, Harvey and myself, Val, it's goodbye. goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.